The scriptures teach us that the prayerless Christian is the faithless Christian. The prayerless Christian is the Christian who has succumbed to the sin of self-reliance. And that's what's happened to the disciples. Look at verse 22. And it has often cast him into the fire and the water to destroy him. So there, once again, we see the activity of the demon. The word there below, to cast, to throw him. He didn't fall in the water. This is the demon attempting to destroy, to kill, to harm this boy in any way possible. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Back in the passage of the Syrophoenician woman, whose daughter was possessed of demon. There in that passage, we saw her as a model of intercessory prayer. And one of the aspects of her request to Jesus, remember, was her identification with her daughter. She says to Jesus, help us, have mercy on us. It's as though her daughter's struggle is hers. And that's a foundational element of intercessory prayer is identification with those for whom you are intercessing. And so here the father says, have mercy on us. Help us if you can do anything. So do you remember the three aspects that Mark has shown us of saving faith? Time and again, we have seen those come to Jesus who possess saving faith. And we've noticed that there's three commonalities in the faith that they have. And those three commonalities are one, they believe that Jesus is able to help them. Two, they believe Jesus is willing to help them. And three, they believe that Jesus will make himself accessible to them. Those are the three elements of saving faith in Mark's gospel. Jesus is able, he's willing, he'll make himself available. So you remember the story of the leper back in chapter one. He had faith that Jesus could heal him, but he wasn't quite convinced that Jesus was willing. If you are willing, you can cleanse me. And Jesus said, oh, I am willing. Here we see something of the opposite. He doesn't doubt Jesus's willingness but he does seem to doubt his ability. Why does he doubt his ability? His disciples just failed. So if you're able, if you can, if this is not too hard of a demon for you, will you help us? Will you have compassion on us? Again, consider what their life was like. Consider the hell that is their existence. Now verse 23, And Jesus said to him, If you can... All things are possible for one who believes. So Jesus turns the tables on him. The problem is not Jesus' ability. The problem is the man's ability to believe. That's why Jesus turns the tables back around him. He says, the issue is not my ability. The issue is not my power. The issue is not my, uh, my, my power to cast this demon out. The issue is your ability to believe in that power. That's the issue that he turns back on. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Now that is a verse that perhaps more so than any other single verse has been ripped right out of its context and made to say what it doesn't say. All things are possible for the one who believes. So what do we make that verse to say? We make that verse to say, all you have to do is believe hard enough and anything's possible. So this is the seed of the things like word of faith, 
Speak it into existence. Just speak it and it'll be that sort of thing. This is the seed of that. That's the root of that. All you have to do is believe hard enough and it can be. You can believe it into existence. You can believe it into creation. So that's how this has been twisted among Christian circles. But even outside of Christian circles, this has been twisted to mean something quite perverse compared to how Jesus meant it when he spoke it. Because outside of Christian circles, it's been mean, it's been taken to mean some sort of magic ability, some sort of magical talisman sort of thing that if you just believe something hard enough, you can affect it. How many of us have had the experience of, of maybe there's a sports team that you follow and that sports team was sort of a Cinderella team, wasn't supposed to make the playoffs, but they made the playoffs, wasn't supposed to make it to the end, to the finals, but they make it to the finals. Now they're going to the championship game. And what's the mantra? What's the slogan? Believe. As though your belief has anything to do with the outcome of that sports game. Has anything, even in the same universe, to do with the outcome of something such as a sports competition. And so we've taken this to mean something that Jesus didn't say. Anything is possible for the one who believes. Jesus is not saying that all you have to do is have enough faith and anything becomes possible for you. Instead, Jesus is saying that those who come to the Father with true and genuine faith Place no limits on what the Father can do. That's what Jesus is saying. Look at the context. Because the Father lacked the faith, the belief, the ability to believe that Jesus was able. That's what he said. If you are able. So his faith is teetering on the brink of failure over the aspect of Jesus' ability. And Jesus answers that by saying, those who come to me with genuine faith place no limits on what I'm able to do. If I can, no, 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 that's not a limit to place on me. Your faith in me must be a faith that believes that anything that can be done with strength or power that is within the will of God, I can do. And so that's what he says. Anything is possible for the one who believes. So Jesus is not affirming that our faith can somehow change or shape or direct the will of God. He is saying that genuine, true, saving faith understands that there are no limits upon what God can do. Now, verse 24, immediately. So Mark wants us to see there that the faith of the Father acts in an immediate way. It doesn't wait. It doesn't hesitate. Immediately, the father of child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. True faith, listen to this closely, true faith is always aware of how small and frail it is. That is a characteristic of true and genuine faith. True and genuine faith always has as a component of it an awareness of its own frailty, of its own smallness, of its own weakness. The Father comes to Jesus and He confesses, I believe. And he is a person who is a sheep. He has heard the voice of the shepherd and he has answered the voice of the shepherd and he has faith and he confesses that faith. Yet at the same time, he says, listen, within my heart is this battle between belief and non-belief. Within my heart is this, is this faith that is there, but it is weak and it is frail. And he asks Jesus, help my unbelief. So, Unlike the people of Nazareth, remember we're comparing this to Nazareth. In Nazareth, they refused to believe and they were unrepentant about it. 
He has a weakness of faith. He has an absence of faith in in a way of speaking, but he is repentant. And he asked Jesus to help his unbelief, to help his doubting heart, help my unbelief. So this help my unbelief, it's in the present imperative. So it could actually be translated, help my unbelief and continue helping my unbelief. Help me not just this one time. It's not like this speed bump I got to get over or this one little hump that I get over and then I'm fine. Instead, Help my unbelief and continue helping my unbelief. Every Christian is the same. Every Christian in this room is the same in this sense. Every Christian has a heart that is a mixture of true belief and unbelief, of faith and unfaith. The Christian life is not as we would like to picture it, as this sort of climbing crescendo, as this upwardly mobile graph that the longer that we know Christ, the stronger our faith grows and we just grow and grow and grow and grow. That is not the Christian experience. The Christian experience is a heart that is a mixture of belief and unbelief. And that belief waxes and it wanes, it grows and it diminishes, it strengthens and it weakens. And that is the experience of the Christian. And the Father confesses that He confesses this to Jesus. I've got a heart that's mixed. I've got a heart that's mixed up. I believe, but I ask you to help my unbelief. So this is the central goal. This is the goal of the passage. In fact, this is the goal of all of Mark's gospel. And I would say it's the goal of all of scripture. Mark's purpose statement, that you may believe, that you may see that Jesus is the Christ and he has come. And that's the purpose of all of scripture, that we would see him and believe, and the unbelief in our heart would grow weaker and and smaller, and the belief would go stronger and more vibrant. And so he says, help my unbelief. Verse 25, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. So when Jesus saw the crowd running together, or growing, getting larger, that's when he rebukes the demon. What's going on here is that Jesus never wanted to make a spectacle of himself. There is not an instance in which Jesus tried to gather a crowd. Jesus was always seemed to always have crowds following him and pressing in upon him, but he was not going around with a megaphone saying, let me attract a crowd. Jesus does not want to be perceived as primarily a miracle worker. And so as the crowd begins to gather, as people are starting to take notice, what's going on over there? As people are starting to come over, Jesus says, all right, let's get this over with. Let's do this now before the crowd gets any bigger. So he sees this crowd running together and he rebuked the unclean spirit. Now there are two words in the Greek that are translated rebuke. There is one word in the Greek that's translated rebuke that means to rebuke a person, and it comes with it, it has the the sense of the rebuke being successful or the rebuke producing repentance. This is the word that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 and 17, that the word of God is living, active, sharper than a two-edged sword, and it is useful for the man of God that we may rebuke. And and that in that, the meaning is rebuke a person and rebuke a person successfully so that the person sees the error and repents. That's one of the words that's translated rebuke. There's another word that's translated rebuke that that means more often than not to rebuke a non-person. And it carries no meaning of effectiveness of the rebuke. It carries no sense that the rebuke was carried out into repentance. It's the word that is used to describe what Jesus does to the storm. He rebukes the storm. 
Now, the storm doesn't repent. The storm doesn't say, oh, we're sorry, forgive us, Jesus. The storm is a a non-person. So Jesus rebukes the storm. By the way, it's also the word used of Peter, what Peter said to Jesus when Peter rebuked Jesus. So the word for rebuke, meaning to rebuke a non-person and not expecting a repentance, is the word that's used here. You see how precise the writers of the Scriptures are. How theologically precise. Jesus is not rebuking the demon, hoping the demon will repent and be saved. The demon won't repent. Jesus instead is rebuking the demon just as though he's rebuking a storm. So he rebukes, he commands him, come out. So here we see once again another, another theme of Mark, and that's the theme of the strong man. Jesus is the strong man who has come to oust the lesser strong man, the false strong man, to set the captives free. And he also says, never enter him again. To my knowledge, that's the only instance in which Jesus gives that requirement or that command, never enter him again. It reminds us of what Matthew says, or what Jesus says in Matthew 12, when Jesus talks about the spirit, who, the demon who leaves the person and then goes and gets seven others and comes back. So Jesus is prohibiting that as though Jesus is saying, he has suffered enough, this father has suffered enough, this mother has suffered enough, never enter them again. And after crying out, verse 26, after crying out and convulsing him, here we see it, terribly. This is the strongest seizure yet, convulsing him terribly. One last fit of anger, one last display of rage, terribly convulsing him, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. In other words, the intervention of Jesus produced at least a short-term effect for the boy that was worse than it was before. So once again, this is a picture of salvation. Conversion doesn't come to the sinner, and then life just becomes a bed of roses. Instead, conversion comes to the sinner, and in the short term, in earthly means, life gets worse. Likewise, Jesus cast the demon out, and in casting him out, the boy's life gets in the short term even worse. So he falls down, the, uh, he falls down, he, he uh, commands the demon to leave, and the demon leaves, but he leaves after this one last awful fit, this one last awful convulsion. And he falls down and everyone thinks that he's dead. Now, the question I would ask is this, is the boy dead or is the boy appearing to be dead? We don't know. But just a couple things here that are, I find very interesting. Look at verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Mark is using strong resurrection language. Literally, Mark says Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he arose. That's strong resurrection language there. So that's one thing, the strong use of resurrection language. Secondly, what were the disciples just talking about? Don't say a word until the Son of Man rises from the dead. What Resurrection? What is this resurrection he's talking about? That just happened. What's the next episode? Look at your Bible. What's the next episode? Jesus, once again, the Son of Man is going to be killed and rise from the dead. Resurrection? What is this resurrection thing? You know how Mark likes to sandwich things? They're talking about the resurrection. They're talking about the resurrection. Right in the middle, we find resurrection language that's spoken about somebody that appears to be dead. I think that there's a strong possibility the boy actually died and Jesus, this is another resurrection, Jesus rose him back up to life. 
Either way, the boy is given new life. Whether he physically died or not, he's given new life as Jesus takes him by the hand, raises him up. Think of all the times that Jesus takes someone by the hand. He took Peter's mother-in-law by the hand, raised her up. He took the little girl, Talitha Kumai, and raised her up. He, uh, he took the, uh, the, the, the son of the widow of Nain by the hand, raised him up. We think of uh, him raising him up and then giving him back to his father. Luke tells us that after this, he gave him back to his father, just like the little girl gave them back to his parents. The uh, boy, the widow boy, uh, the widow's boy, he raised back and gave back to her mother. Or we think of Elijah as Elijah goes upstairs, raises the boy back to life, brings him down and gives him back to the mother. So we see consistent themes here, gives him back. He lifts him up and he arose. Let me just ask this question. What did the father ask Jesus to do? This is wonderful. What did the father ask Jesus to do? The father actually asked Jesus to do two things, didn't he? He says, I brought my boy to you. I brought my son to you. He is possessed of the Spirit, and the Spirit is horrible. This is evil. But he asked Jesus to do something else, didn't he? I believe. Help my unbelief. Do you think what Jesus did helped his unbelief? Do you think that Jesus answered his every prayer far greater than he even hoped for? Do you think that not only is the demon cast out, which is what the Father wanted, but even on a deeper level, on a more spiritual level, the Father wanted to believe resolutely in this man Jesus, and what Jesus has done has just granted that request. So verse 28, And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So this is the third out of four times in Mark's Gospel in which the disciples and Jesus go into a private location, usually a house, and within that context, greater revelation is shown. So here they go into the house and they ask Him privately, why could we not cast Him out? Notice the focus there. Why could we not cast Him out? As though the problem was, there's some sort of hang up with them. We, we did this, but we couldn't do it here. Why could we not cast it out? Verse 29, And He said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So the implication here is that the reason that they couldn't cast Him out was because of a lack of prayer or a prayerlessness. So what is Jesus saying to them? In Matthew's Gospel, they ask Him the same question and He answers it differently. He says, you couldn't cast him out because of your faithlessness, because you were not faith, you didn't believe, you didn't faith. Here he says, because you didn't pray. Actually, though, there's the same thing. When Jesus says, this kind can only be cast out by prayer, let's understand what he said and what he didn't say. When Jesus then goes on to cast the demon out, did he stop and pray? Is there any record that Jesus said, Bring the boy to me. They bring him to, to Jesus. And Jesus says, Father, help me do this. I'm, I'm about to, this is a really strong demon. Help me, Father. And then he commands him. No, no, there's no record of that. So Jesus didn't stop and pray before commanding the demon to leave. So Jesus cannot mean that, oh, you didn't cast him out because you didn't pray first. That can't be what Jesus means because he didn't do that himself. Instead, when he says this can only be cast out by prayer, implying your prayerlessness was the problem, what he's getting at is not that you didn't pray before you did it, like praying before a meal. What he's saying is that you have started to exhibit a life of prayerlessness. 
In fact, that your communion with the Father has grown cold. And not that you didn't stop and pray right before this, but instead your prayerlessness has rendered you incapable of doing this thing, which is the same thing as Matthew says when he says, because of your little faith. Because you know that prayer is simply vocalized faith. Prayer is putting words to faith. And the two are connected so closely and so intimately that prayerlessness and faithlessness are the same thing. Faithlessness is evidenced in prayerlessness. You know, there are three ways that the New Testament shows us that we can assess our own belief. You know, we talked earlier about, I believe, but help my unbelief. And all of us have this heart that's a mixture of belief and unbelief. Do you know how you assess whether your unbelief is strong or whether your belief is strong? There's three ways the New Testament tells you to do this. Number one, in fear. The greater fear, the less faith. Jesus says to the disciples in the boat, why were you afraid? Have you no faith? So the presence of fear also means the presence of unbelief. Number two, you're giving. Because the Scriptures say to us that giving is evidence of faith. So assess your giving. That also is a representation of faith. Number three is the present passage, prayerlessness. The Scriptures teach us that the prayerless Christian is the faithless Christian. The prayerless Christian is the Christian who has succumbed to the sin of self-reliance. And that's what's happened to the disciples. Jesus gave them this authority to cast out demons and they experienced success. And now their faith has been transitioned more onto their past success than the one who gave them that authority. And so now they are approaching this demon with this cavalier sort of attitude that says, well, we, we got this one. We've done this before. So they, in their prayerlessness, Jesus says, because of your prayerlessness is why you couldn't. Now, I do need to address something that really comes to light in the King James. And we don't often do this, but this I need to address this one. If you're looking at a King James this morning, then your passage says this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. None of the oldest manuscripts have fasting. None of the best manuscripts have fasting. Only the younger manuscripts and only the inferior manuscripts have fasting. So fasting and fasting is something that, that virtually certain, there's a virtual certainty that Mark didn't write that, that Mark just wrote prayer. But why would fasting be included if Mark didn't write it? How would it have get, gotten added on? The reason I bring this about, you'll see in just a moment why, why I bring this about, but the reason is very important to see. Throughout many millennia, through centuries, the Scriptures were preserved for us by those that we would refer to today as, as monks who would, in a, in a monastery type of setting, would copy the Scriptures. What is the practice that those people are most known for? Fasting. And so very evidently, at some point, some monk decided, it's not just prayer. Because all this fasting we do, that's got to be part of it. You know, this is one of three places in the New Testament that that got added. Here, Acts, and a place in 1 Corinthians. They're in your notes. 
But the reason I point that out is because doesn't that destroy the whole point? If it then becomes something that you do, some sort of formula, well, I got to fast for four days. I got to fast for eight days and then I can cast out demons. This is a really strong one. Maybe I need to fast 12 days. Then I can cast out this demon. You just destroyed Jesus' point. Because His point is, this can only be done in reliance upon Me. And it is your self-reliance that has caused you to fall flat. The Father heard their pleas. Cast this demon out. I command you, demon, to leave this. And the Father, looking upon their hearts, seeing the self-reliance in their hearts, threw them under the bus and said, I will do nothing. I will do nothing in response to the, to the heart that thinks you've got this covered, that you don't need me, that you know the formula. Jesus gave you the authority some months ago and He never took it back. So you're all good to go. You can just sort of go about it as you, as you wish. And so the Father says, uh-uh, not this time. And it is the Son who then comes and says, Father, how long? How long will your people be crippled by their unbelief? How long, O oh Father, will your people fall back into the unbelief of thinking that they just got to have the right formula, that they just got to know the right name? Like the seven sons of Sceva in Acts chapter 19, where these, these Jewish would-be exorcists, they hear Paul casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and they say, oh, that sounds like a good name, a pretty powerful name. We'll use that name to no effect. How long, Father, how long will, we, will this unbelief grip the hearts of your people? When will your people be set free from their self-reliance? You see, Jesus was not, I used to think this for years, Jesus was not saying, oh, don't worry about this. This was a particularly hard one. There's no shame here. This was a really, really stubborn demon. This was a really hard, particularly evil demon. Don't feel bad, guys. I'll take care of this one. That's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, all things are possible for the one who believes, for the one whose heart is not a mixture of belief and unbelief, but the one whose heart has totally left the sin of self-reliance and relies totally on the Father for all things. It is that heart that sees no limit in what God can do. So our takeaway is simply this. Prayerlessness is a red flag in your life. Any area of your life in which you find yourself prayerless over that area is an area in which unbelief has a stronghold. And so the takeaway here is simply this, to search your life, to search your heart, ask the Father to show you areas of your life and which you just think no matter how simple or mundane or routine it may be, I don't particularly need to ask God for help in this area. I don't particularly need God to help me here. I've got this. I've done this a hundred times before. It is those areas in which we most need God. It is those areas in which we most need to take them to God in prayer. Ask the Lord to show you your areas of self-reliance. Confess them, flee from them, and commit them to the Lord in prayer.